invite you to look with me once again in 1 Peter. We are in the fifth chapter. We begin this morning at verse 8. We read through the end of the chapter and the end of this letter. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. And now, Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you with power bring this word deep into our hearts through the instrumentality of our minds as we think, as we ponder, as we consider, that it be applied. Lord, help us stand firm. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The early apocryphal manuscript known as the Acts of Peter, not part of Scripture, just an early Christian document, was the first to indicate the apostles' death came by inverted crucifixion. That is, he was crucified upside down. By the close of the second century, Tertullian, who lived 155 to 220, give or take, held the same view and was in agreement. Origin, approximately the same time period, is recorded as saying Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downwards as he had desired to suffer. Jerome, in the era around 350 to 420, set his own seal of approval on this view. And eventually Michelangelo painted it into the stone in a chapel in the Vatican. Apparently, Peter will seal his testimony with his blood. What he writes about here in terms of suffering is not written from safety. It is not written from some secure bunker. It's written knowing that his very life is on the line. We come to the end of this first letter. If you're keeping track, 
This is, I believe, the 23rd sermon, unless somewhere I miscounted. Having under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written, as he says in chapter 1, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody from those places. To the best of my knowledge, I've not met anybody from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. But my thanksgiving is he's not just written to them, he wrote to us. He's encouraged and exhorted us to faithful living in fearful times. Now he comes to the end of the letter and we're confronted, and this is not unusual. There's always a dynamic, a tension, if you will, between the assurance of grace and the responsibility of personal effort. Now, we are the ones who make this, I think, harder than it has to be because we'd really like it to be one or the other. We don't like living with tension. We prefer, okay, make it all grace, then we go live any way we want to and we know we're good. Or, it's all up to me and I've really got to work at this. And the Scripture will not do that for you. The Gospel will not do that for you. The Gospel will tell you you are saved entirely by something outside of you. The person and work of Jesus Christ. The reality, we are saved by somebody else's deeds. You are saved by works, my friend. They're just not yours. Somebody else did what you and I cannot do. And my friend, if you're not a Christian today, hear what I'm about to say. Please bury all your promises of being good. Please put to death all your thoughts of making a vow that you'll do better. I'm here to tell you of a salvation that takes you as a sinner in the midst of the worst wickedness and says to you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. But that gospel, while it saves us, secures us, justifies us, at the same time has an impact on how we conduct ourselves. I tend to agree with a brother who said it this way, we have so often told people becoming a Christian will solve all your problems, we probably should have been more honest and said becoming a Christian may make your life harder. Hmm. And when it comes to suffering, you see, our problem is we, we think that suffering or struggles or trials, somehow we, we convince ourselves this is all to harm us. Somehow this can't be good. This has to be in some way to our detriment, our destruction. That is why our first prayer when trouble comes is, Lord, get me out. This is default setting. Now, I'm not being critical. I wish I could tell you that every time a trial comes to me, I could nobly say, well, Lord, I'm so thankful. Because i got to take a little time to talk to the Lord and to Doug about what's going on. We are commanded to stand. And, and if, if you want to grab a phrase that I think is really key in all of this, it's right there at the end of the 12th verse when he says, 
He's been exhorting and declaring this is the true grace of God. I think he's looking back at the whole letter. That everything he's talked about is the true grace of God. And then here's his exhortation, stand firm in it. You want a place to stand, here's where you stand. You stand in the grace of God. We're commanded to do that. So how do we do that? First, standing against the enemy. Verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. First, the proper attitude in standing against the enemy. The attitude is sober-mindedness and watchfulness. We cannot avoid, I don't think we're expected to avoid, this conclusion Simon Peter uses those words for a very specific reason. Simon Peter knew what it was not to stand, not to be sober-minded, not to be watchful. I can't read that without thinking about the gospel accounts. Mark, 14th chapter. And I'm one of those who thinks that behind Mark writing this was Simon Peter, by the way. And he said to them, my soul's very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and sang the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know how to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. My friends, whenever suffering hits us, whenever it comes, one of the first things we tend to do is be thoughtless and panicked. Sober-mindedness is not the first thing that comes to us in suffering. The very opposite. I, I don't know about you, but with my extraordinarily active imagination, It doesn't take long for me to extrapolate from a rather minor trial to absolute den of lions disasters. I think that is built into all of us. We are not known for calm demeanor when these things come to us, sober-mindedness, watchfulness. We, we also have this built-in tendency to be slack and lazy in the face of these things. This is where I'd echo what Dr. Lloyd-Jones says in his book on spiritual depression. It's time to take yourself in hand. Start talking to yourself. Think. Remember what you've been taught. Pay attention. Why is all of this so hard for us to do? Well, because we have an enemy. 
Part of standing is standing against the enemy. It starts with a proper attitude and right thinking, but in that right thinking, the right thinking is you have an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The word there for adversary is not combative. It is not the idea of one-on-one spiritual jujitsu. The word is a legal terminology. You have an opponent who is coming against you. In fact, if you think about it, in the book of Job, Satan appears in the role of something, uh, as one brother put it, of a heavenly prosecutor. In fact, he seems to patrol the earth collecting evidence. Satan's motivation is not zeal for justice, however. Rather, he seeks to discredit God's Word and destroy God's works. In Zechariah's vision, the third chapter of the first verse, he stands beside Joshua the high priest as his accuser and is rebuked by the angel of the Lord. The first thing to remind yourself of, my friend, is if anything, if Satan can get you to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt your own conversion, to make you miserable under the suffering that somehow, oh, I messed up, I did the wrong thing. If I could just keep my life straight, these things wouldn't happen to me. I wouldn't be in this place. I'm the most wretched, horrible, terrible, awful, failed Christian who's ever lived. And if you haven't said those words, I'm not sure what to do for you, Christian. We've been there, haven't we? Oh, you might not have said it aloud, but you've said it inwardly, haven't you? See, this is why Luther said, when the devil comes to me and makes all his accusations, he said, you ought to respond this way. Is that all you have? Let me tell you some other things about me. He said, this is the place to agree with your adversary quickly. And in that agreement, and say, right over all of it, covered by the blood of Christ. The first thing you need to know, my friend, is this roaring lion who comes as your adversary is trying to take you to the place you're not sober-minded and you're not watchful anymore. You're in a panic. But he's also pictured as a lion. Now, I've I've done a bit of reading. I can't remember the title of reading a book at home that was written by an African guide who took people on safaris and also was retained by African governments to hunt down man-killers. Folks, I'm here to tell you, the thought of facing a lion anywhere except him secure in a steel cage will absolutely reduce you to knee-knocking destruction. Lions are dangerous animals. 
Now, Peter has, I think, two things in mind. I think he has in mind the richness of the Old Testament where the psalmists often reference enemies as lions. And lions were not a thing for the zoo in that era. They were actually out there. But the other thing I think he has in mind is what he already knows is coming. As Christians are going to die in the Colosseum under wild animals. My friend, we must remember we not only can have suspicious neighbors persecuting authorities, but behind that is spiritual reality and a spiritual enemy. Part of the reason that we use the response that we did today from Ephesians 6, by the way, I've noticed a lot of parallels between Ephesians and 1 Peter. I don't know why I never noticed that before, but I noticed it this time through. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So what am I supposed to do with a lion? What do I do? I need a gun. That's what I'm thinking, right? Maybe many people, no, the language seems peculiar to me, honestly. There's this roaring lion out there, and what are you supposed to do? Resist him. I don't know about you folks, but that sounds a little feeble. I think of several feet, several hundred pounds of tooth, claw, and muscle. And I'm a larger than average fellow. But to tell me to resist that seems inadequate. Except the resistance is not some weird quasi-ninja, quasi-mercenary, black ops situation. Resistance is understanding the nature of the attack. Now you see, even Jesus tells us, if you die, you don't deny the Lord, don't be afraid of the one that can kill the body. Rather, fear the one that after he kills the body can throw you into hell. Yes, you ought to fear him. What is it that the lion is doing? He's not primarily consuming us physically. He's out to destroy us, make us ineffective spiritually. So what is it that Paul does? Paul takes the imagery and he takes it another direction. And he uses very similar language. Stand, stand firm, stand firm. Okay, standing firm. Why? How? Having a belt of truth and a breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. That works against lions. It does against this lion. You see, my friend, the nature of our resistance is not what some of our brethren want us to get into, where you and I somehow have to have a spiritual, intuitive capacity 
to see demons and to use formulas and to know the right words. Can I tell you again? I've said it before. I'll say it again. When everything about doing spiritual warfare is about words and word orders, that is not Christianity. It's magic. What am I supposed to do? I am to put on truth. I am to believe that I've been given righteousness. I'm to stand on the gospel. I'm to put on a helmet of salvation to guard my thinking. I am to take up faith like a shield because the enemy wants me to doubt my father. And I am to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Can I tell you that everything that Paul so beautifully uh, illumines with a metaphor, a picture, an allegory, is the very thing that Peter is saying when he says, stand firm, resist, hold on. How? He's a roaring lion. But if you resist him, James says, he will flee from you. And the flight is not because you're this skilled, black ops, spiritual warrior. It's because, my friend, you know and remind yourself and apply in mind and heart the truth of what has been done for you and in you. Now this standing against the enemy is having a proper attitude. It is having a powerful action when the attack comes. It's also having some proper encouragement. And I think this is glorious. He says, knowing the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. One of the things which happens when we suffer is we start to feel isolated. Was that not what made the whole COVID pandemic so hard for all of us, right? Now, I know some of you are introverts. You've considered Catholicism, not over theology, just the thought of being a monk or a nun and living off by yourself somewhere sounds appealing. But here's the reality for most of us, the isolation was hard. And is that not part of what happens when we suffer? We start feeling alone. Peter is pointing out, Christian, remember, you have others around you. The brotherhood throughout the world is suffering. I'd encourage you, my friend, to take some time, look up the website, get acquainted with a ministry like Voice of the Martyrs, and remind yourself of what your brethren are dealing with throughout the world. It'll give you a whole new perspective on what you and I are dealing with here. Relationships with other believers can be a source of extraordinary encouragement. Do you have those kinds of relationships in, in this church, from other churches, maybe even on the mission field? One of the things I observe, and I've seen this throughout my ministry, is pastors, leaders of churches sometimes end up isolated, and it's never healthy, ever. I've probably got a, about three or four pastors groups I'm connected with, two formally, two informally. And I do that because 
Even as long as I've done this, there's things that you run into you don't know how to handle. You're discouraged. You're not sure what to think. You need somebody that has some wisdom and has the feet on the ground again to say, hey, brother, hang on. It's okay. You're going to be all right. The Lord will be faithful. I read this. We... We need one another and this encouragement and finding ways not only to have that, but to do it. In southern France, overlooking the Mediterranean, stands the Tower of Constance. In the 18th century, Huguenot women, these were Protestants, Huguenot women were imprisoned for decades because they refused to surrender their Reformed faith. In the tower room where they were held captive, a stone coping surrounds the opening in the floor and inscribed in the stone is the word resist. Marie Durand entered that room in 1729 and she was 15 years old. Three years later, her brother Pierre was hanged in Montpellier. In 1745, she was offered her freedom if she would agree to renounce Protestant worship, she refused all such offers, remained captive. Now, hear what I'm about to say. She went in at age 15. She remained captive for 38 years. Resisting the temptations to despair, suicide, and betrayal. From her imprisonment, she began a ministry of encouragement by correspondence. Some of her letters are kept today in the Museum of the Wilderness in the mountains of Savannah. My friends, open your eyes. There's others around you. Some of you suffer more than you need to because you won't open your life and heart to anybody else and you won't open your eyes to see you're not the only one. We are extraordinarily self-centered people by nature. So stand against the enemy. Secondly, stand on God's promises. We'll not take a long time on this doxology. I'd encourage you to spend time on this, though. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. What a glorious doxology, hymn of praise. This suffering will not be endless. It will be for a little while. Now, no suffering seems like a little while when you're doing it. But here is the eternal perspective. After you've suffered a little while, the Lord's going to deliver, and that deliverance will be one of two things. It will either end by the Lord's providential action in this life in deliverance, or it will end by the Lord's same providential action in taking you home. Almost all of us experience the former right? We've all suffered and then come through it. If you lived any time at all, Christian, you could bear testimony to this, could you not? You've gone through some hard things, and here you are. Some of you are still dealing with hard things. Here you be. How am I to be encouraged unless I believe this promise that first of all, God is a God of all grace. He cares for you. Further, He called you and will himself he is making you holy he's at work in your life he has called you and will himself do four things restore confirm strengthen establish 
Now, when you're in the middle of it and you're struggling, none of that sounds like anything going on. I'm not restored. I'm not confirmed. I'm not strengthened. I'm not established. It feels like the boat is about to throw me out. But here's the promise. He will do these things. And he will make you better through that. To him be dominion forever and ever. Everything that's happening is under his hand. The God of all grace. All right. We're to stand against the enemy. We're to stand on God's promises. Finally, we're to stand with others who stand. And I love this because what he does is he kind of picks up that theme from earlier when he said, know that the brotherhood, those around the world are suffering the same kinds of things. Here he gets very specific because he talks about people they know. And he does this by encouraging in true grace, by Silvanus or Silas, same name, a faithful brother as I regard him. I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. This Silvanus or Silas, I think, is the same fellow that was with Paul in prison at Philippi. You know, one of the difficulties when you read 1 Peter and then read 2 Peter in the original language is that 1 Peter is beautifully done in Greek. In fact, this is beyond my knowledge, but others have said there's elements of classical Greek in 1 Peter. 2 Peter is rough to read. The grammar's a little awkward. And this is how I look at it. Second Peter reads like a Galilean fisherman whose first language was Aramaic was writing in a language with which he was not real familiar and wrote it himself. Now, have you ever taken a foreign language class and they made you write something in that language? Was that not one of the most embarrassing things you ever had to do? Or, you know, you think about it, you think you know a little bit of Spanish or you know a little bit of German or French and you, you run into somebody and you start to use it and they look at you like, oh, aren't you cute? You're trying. You just butchered my mother tongue. First Peter, I think Silas was probably writing as Peter was talking. He's acting as kind of the amanuensis. That's the fancy word for secretary. He's writing it down. You understand, Silas is one of those people the church really can't do without. He's the fellow who's content to be in second place and serve in the background, whether anybody notices or not. I mean, we don't turn to first Silas, right? There's not a first epistle from Silvanus. There's none. Peter mentions him, and we get an insight. But, my friend, that's really an essential, isn't it? Are you willing to be the guy in the background that maybe never gets all or any of the acknowledgement? And the other thing is, brief? Brief. <laughs> I have written briefly to you. <laughs> well, in our Bible, it's five chapters and 105 verses, certainly not as long as the Gospels, Acts, Romans, or Hebrews. Even the writer of Hebrews refers to his work as being brief. I know some of you say, preachers. Wouldn't know brief if it bit him. The majesty and wonder of the subject makes any attempt to deal with it a short one. I have on, in my library the 16 volumes of material that John Owen wrote in the course of his life, and I would dare say he'd call that overall a small amount. 
Even the Gospel of John ends this way. Now there are also many other things Jesus did wherever one of them to be written. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And I'd have you look back how has Peter encouraged us the certainty of God's purpose and power in the first chapter. Trials are for a purpose, same first chapter. We have joy unspeakable and filled with glory. The price of our redemption, we are a special people there's an encouragement in our relationships with one another, an encouragement in the face of persecution. You and I are to be encouraged by this true grace. We're also to have caring because of this true grace. This is further encouragement. She who's at Babylon, now who in the world is that? And the question becomes, is Babylon the same as the Babylon along the Euphrates that had been demolished? There might have been a small community there. There was also another Babylon in Africa but I don't think that's what's going on here. I think when he says she who is at Babylon, he's referring to the church who's in Rome. The word for church is a feminine noun. Ecclesia is a feminine noun. I think when he says she, he's doing that intentionally. He's referencing church. And when he says in Babylon, he's writing, he knows Roman authorities may look at this. They don't have the Old Testament background to know that Babylon was seen as the center of the world's power and the enemy of God and it was just an artistic way and something of a coded way to say the church at Rome and Mark I don't believe John Mark was literally Peter's son but I think his son in ministry that's if you will the extended fellowship they're out there folks you got some friends you got some Christian friends somewhere besides here is it good to hear from them? You like it when you get a text, you get a call, get a note, right? And then there's the immediate family. Greet one another with the kiss of love, peace to all who are in Christ. Now, some of you just die. Preacher, explain this one to me real quick. Why don't we kiss one another? Well, because that's more a matter of culture than anything else. The idea here was to show genuine affection and greet one another. Peace to all who are in Christ. My friend, if you're in Christ, you have peace. You may have outward tribulation, but inwardly you have peace. What did Jesus say? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Or John 16, 33, I said these things to you that in me, you have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Christian, do you hear the call? This is the true grace of God. Stand. Stand firm. Right there. You're not alone. Don't believe the lie that the Lord doesn't really care. Don't believe the lie that somehow the devil has been given the power to overwhelm you because even though he's like a roaring lion, what's the word? Resist him. That sounds impotent in many ways, but really it is powerful. How do I resist? Sober-mindedness, watchfulness. How has the Lord done his work in me? I trust him. Resist, he flees. 
It ought to echo in your heart when we sing, A mighty fortress is our God. Remember that line, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure in this little phrase. One little word shall fell him. (laughs) That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. Hmm. That word, my friend, is the word of this gospel. Never lose sight of that. Oh, I'm calling you to stand because Peter calls you to stand, but let me explain that that standing is standing in the gospel. The gospel is not something to do The gospel is something to believe. And having believed that gospel, stand right there for it's enough. How's it enough, preacher? Well, I am not ashamed. Rob, I'll finish the rest of that little text in Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. To who? Everyone who believes. One little word. The gospel word. Oh, my brothers and sisters, let us stand. Father.